0: coming up on the Modern Hotelier. At the end of the day, a hotel, and by the way, a person, a car, a meal, all interactions in life, everything you do in life, literally everything, is either memorable or forgettable. So if you apply that to a hotel, I don't care how much I paid, I don't care how many stars it had, I don't care what amenities it had, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. Is it memorable or is it forgettable? So I'd say the only hotels I want to be involved with are memorable hotels.
1: Hello and welcome to the Modern Hotelier presented by Stay Flexi, your all in one modern operating system for independent hotels. Each episode, we'll get to know an industry expert and we'll discuss the latest trends in hospitality to help you, the modern hotelier. Welcome to the Modern Hotelier presented by Stay Flexi. I'm your host, David Malilli. And I'm Steve Karen. Steve, who do we have on the program today? Yeah, David, today we have on
2: Bashar Wally. Bashar has over 30 years of experience in hospitality. He worked as a GM at Starwood Hotels before leading acquisitions and development globally at the Grand Heritage Hotels. Bashar then served as a president and CEO of Providence Hotels, where he grew the company from five to 15 hotels and expanded the collection from a Pacific Northwest to an award winning national brand. Now Bashar is the founder and CEO of this assembly and practice hospitality.
1: Welcome to the show, Bashar. Thanks, guys. Delighted to be here. All right. We're going to get started. So we're going to go through a couple areas. We're going to get to know you a little bit better, get to know your career, what you've done, and then we're going to ask you some industry questions. And so here we go. So what was the first job you ever had?
0: For a non-native English speaker, my first job was PBX operator. And no, not the plug-in 50s style, that we actually had a phone with buttons and numbers on it. And for those who don't know what that is, you answer the phone and direct the
1: calls. Who did you admire growing up? Probably mom, just hard worker, tenacious. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Never confuse effort for results. What's the worst piece of advice you've received?
0: The hotel business is fun, it pays well. (laughs)
1: <laughs> what's the biggest what's the biggest r- risk you've ever taken
0: starting a company in the middle of the bowels of hell of covid a hotel company no less
1: yeah, we're gonna get into that but who's a person dead or alive you'd like to take to lunch and where would you take them
0: oh uh probably mother teresa and i'd like to take her to her kitchen and sit on the floor and just have a seven hour conversation with her
1: what makes you angry
0: Oh God. (laughs) What doesn't make me angry? Uh, People who drive in the left lane at like below the speed limit, blood pressure, 9,000 immediately.
1: (laughs) Uh, What scares you? My daughter who's 17. What's something that you wish you were better at? Sleeping on planes. Mm, I have a trick. I'll tell you later. If you could have a superpower, what superpower would you like to have?
0: Teleportation because I want to visit all 193 countries and two territories.
1: Awesome. Well,
2: that was great. Now we we'll get to learn a little bit more about you, what makes you tick, and uh, your background. You grew up in Damascus, Syria. Is that correct? Yep. And how did that shape you into who you are today?
0: Well, first of all, my love of urban, uh, I'm an urban rat. Damascus, Syria at the time was 3 million people. You know, we lived in flats or in a home. So I've always been a fan of the energy cities provide. And my favorite pastime was and still is, flaneur is a French word that means he who wanders a city aimlessly. And I remember growing up, just literally walking for hours on end, just admiring, engaging all my senses, whether it's architecture or fabric or texture or spices or dirt or garbage or rats or whatever it may be. It's made me really observant of the world around me and kind of looking at the canvas broadly. And clearly growing up in the Middle East, I use this quote a lot that I sort of, I tell people why I got in the industry. And it goes something like this, when a stranger shows up at your door, feed him for three days before you ask him who he is, where he's from or where he's going to, because by then he'll either have the strength to answer or you'll be just such good friends, it won't matter. So this idea of hospitality is very innate in that part of the world and lots of parts of the world. But it certainly has sort of shaped my view on what hospitality is and what it means.
1: What made you decide to go to Johnson & Wales and, and take a degree in hospitality? You know, that
0: was a means to an end. I obviously was trying to come to the U.S. legally. And the way to come to the U.S. legally was to come to go to college. I thought I'd study journalism, politics. You know, I always had a dream of working at World Bank or the U.N. or whatever, but we knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy there who got me accepted to the school and I showed up and no intention of hospitality, walked in and here we are today, 30
1: some years later. Were you involved in any organizations when you are at university?
0: Not really. I mean, I had to pay for myself going through school. So I literally had two jobs trying to pay for school and worked seven days a week. It was one of those, you know, no, no silver spoon. So no time for fun. I'm trying to make up for it now. That's why I'm still a 14-year-old at heart and want to visit every country and have FOMO for everything in life that exists. Whether I like it or not, I have FOMO for it.
2: There you go. There you go. And you've been involved in uh, the Young Presidents organization for quite a few years. Can you tell us more about what YPO is and and what made you get involved?
0: So YPO is a global networking organization, 30,000 members globally represents combined the fourth largest economy in the world, powerful organization. You have to meet certain standards to get in. No secret handshake, no funny business really is a great professional networking organization. And you know, you get to a point in your career and you guys hear this, that it's lonely at the top and it really is lonely at the top. And it's hard to find a group of peers that you can speak freely to. And YPO has been such a tremendously important, valuable part of my life because it offers me that not only personally, professionally in every way. And it's one of those things like everything in life, you get out of it, what you put in it. So I went all in. Uh, there's a hospitality network within the organization of roughly 4,000 CEOs globally, of which I'm the chair now. And again, the access I have, you know, think about the, the, the power of saying I'm able to pick up the phone and call 4,000 hospitality CEOs globally. And again, it's not about asking for favors, it's not about doing business together, it's just about, hey, I'm facing this issue, I'm sure you've faced it before, tell me what to do. Tremendous value. And I can't emphasize this idea of networking to anyone, you know, network, 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 network. Surround yourself with people that are smarter than you are.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, you're notorious for for staying in one hotel per night. Are you still doing that? Are you switching hotels every night?
0: I was in uh, Europe last week for a week uh, I don't think I stayed in any hotel more than one night. Wow. Although I was jumping countries also. I was there for eight days, seven countries. So yeah, I I look, it's painful. Yeah. I'm too old. <laughs> However, it's become like my thing. People yeah. will shame me if I don't do it. <laughs> so it's almost obligatory now. Now I am smart enough and have been married for a long time to know that uh yeah, I'm not doing that to my wife. Sure. But when I travel alone, that's my jam. And if I travel with you guys on a business trip, I'm doing it, right? Absolutely. Like, Wait, we're, we're not doing it.
2: Right, so. right. What's your current number of hotels you've stayed at in New York City?
0: 225.
2: Wow. Do you, have a, do you have a global number as well? Or
0: I haven't kept track of the global number. The reason for Manhattan is to just sort of demonstrate the immense neurotic behavior that I have. Like LA, I've run out. DC, I've run out. Boston, I've run out. Look, many people travel a lot more than me, so it's it's not about like the road warrior badge. Lots of people literally live on the road, have no home. I don't travel as much as many. I travel a lot, 220,000 miles here to date, but I'm pretty confident that I hold the world record for the most hotels in one city, because no one is stupid enough to do that. (laughs) Problem is I don't care enough to prove it, so I've never pursued proving it.
2: (laughs) Maybe they'll hear this and you'll get a plaque in the mail or something. Yeah, great. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: just what I need. So do you have a travel pack, like a you know a secret that that helps you when you travel?
0: I mean, people talk about unpacking. I'm like, what are you? psycho? What do you mean? unpacking? Yeah. <laughs> who unpacks? I hang my shirts so that I' get right but outside of that, my suitcase is my drawer. You know, people talk about rolling their shirts and people talk about doing this and that and the other. It really is pretty straightforward, and yes, I am one of those who say. Three-day trip, three pairs of underwear, one, one in case I die, one in case I go to the hospital, so I end up with nine anyway. So I don't have any real hack, except I'm sure you guys have heard my neurotic water pressure fetish. So I do travel with a, with a wrench and a pair of pliers so I can self-improve the water pressure in my room on my own.
2: Does that ever get stopped at security or anything?
0: You know, it's funny. So what we're talking about here is the first thing I do when I walk into a hotel room, I take the shower head off and back in the day, you flip it over and the water flow restrictor falls out. Well, those have become intricately built in part of the EPA requirements. So now I have to travel with needle nose pliers (laughs) and literally whack the thing and yank it out. And you're right. uh, You know, maybe 30% of the time, The TSA guy whose IQ is like two says, Oh, what are you doing with this thing? Like, what the hell do you think I'm doing? What am I going to poke the pilot in the eye with them? So, yes, I buy them by the case from Amazon. And generally, I I will have one in my briefcase and one in my suitcase. So, if one goes, the other have a good chance of passing through.
2: Unreal. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you kind of talked a little bit about this with with YPO and and kind of the importance of having a community around you. Have you had a mentor, you know, in your 30 years of hospitality or somebody that's really made an impact on on your career?
0: I mean, look, I've had a lot of mentors along the way, and it's hard for me to just point out one. But I will say there was this, this one guy, I was front office manager, he was GM. He was 29 at the time. And he gave me this sort of, again, competition, so to speak. And I said to him, I said, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to make it to GM a lot younger than you. And I did it. I was 27 at a hotel that had 300 rooms that was union and had all these nightmares. And I remember telling the story of walking into a staff meeting that I'm running where I'm literally the youngest person, right? Like literally by a lot, you know, what? it's one of those things, tell me I can't and watch me do it anyway. So I think sometimes we need that little push. So he's, he's a guy I remember vividly, and it was almost competition-like, sure. but it worked really, really well.
2: Hello, my name is Steve and director of sales at state Flexi and the co-host of the Modern Hotelier. State Flexi is a modern all-in-one system for hotels and vacation rentals. It's a built-in channel manager, PMS, booking engine, POS, revenue manager, and a magic link where your guests will receive a text message or email that has a link that's live throughout the whole stay. So your guests will be able to check in, add any products or experiences onto their stay while they're in-house, and then use that link to also check out. StayFlexy Flexi is built to be flexible to accommodate the modern guests while also being easy to use so any hotelier can pick it up quickly. Shoot me an email at steve.karen at stayflexi.com or message me on LinkedIn to learn more or set up a demo. Thanks so much and enjoy this episode of The Modern Hotelier. That was great. Now, now we'll get to talk about your career a little bit, find out you know a little bit more about that. So what was your first job in hospitality?
0: PBX operator, like I mentioned earlier, and I, I've applied out of college for literally one job, and that was the one job I've ever applied for. I've never applied for a job since. And, you know, look, so Johnson Wells is a hotel specialty school, culinary and hospitality, certainly not the gold standard. Obviously, you have a lot of great schools, sort of Cornell being the Ivy, and then UNLV in Michigan and all of that. And I always sort of say, sure, having a degree is important, But the reality is, and I'll probably get some hate mail for this. It's not rocket science. Hospitality is not rocket science. And if you go back to my earlier quote, if you know how to host a party at your house, done. That's the only education you need. So I tell people fundamentally, the idea of going to school for it is nice. It's nice to have the piece of paper, but nothing like the school of hard knocks, nothing like working an overnight shift, nothing like having to walk a bus full of old tourists in Boston who are coming to watch the leaves turn and telling them, sorry, we have no room for you. We're sending you two hours away. No school ever teaches you that, standing on the bus being torn apart by a bunch of old ladies. So I am thankful I worked and I tell people I have literally worked, not in a management training program, not in a fancy hoity-toity way. I actually paid my dues. Cleaning toilets, maintenance, night audit, dishwashing, kitchen, sales, accounting. And I love how that has grounded me and given me a whole different perspective than, again, some hoity-toity Ivy League education yeah. where I think I know what I'm talking about.
2: You kind of mentioned this, like you kind of did everything in a hotel. Did that help you in your role when you did become a GM for Starwood?
0: I mean, clearly, 100%. And, yeah. and people say, well, how do you do it? It's very easy in a hotel construct. I never said no, ever. I literally would be working a double shift and it's now 11 o'clock and the night auditor calls in sick and they're like, can anyone stay? Of course, I'll stay. Or someone says, my computer broke. I'm like, I'll look at it because if you're not afraid to tackle something, that's how you learn fundamentally, right? So if you just jump all in and you're open and willing to learn and not timid about it, that's essentially the school of hard knocks, right? Like pretend enough to convince them, you know, because you're going to learn how to do it once you get your hands on it.
1: So from Starwood, you went on to become vice president of at Grand Heritage Hotel Group. What was that like leading the efforts for North America, British Virgin Islands, and Mexico?
0: You know, it was a really interesting company at the time because we specialized in historic assets only before it was a thing. So you had these amazing properties that truly were the true, authentic, original storytellers because they actually had a story to tell. Right. It wasn't some random branding that someone created to tell a story. And these buildings on average were hundreds of years old. They had European assets as well. So it was a very rewarding opportunity. And again, I was, you know, probably now I was in my early 30s and I was traveling the world, living on the road. And, you know, going from being some hotel operator to sitting down and negotiating big deals. It was such a great learning experience. And my wife, to whom I've been married, Eileen for a long time. I had a great system at home. I had a stable sort of thing at home that allowed me to do what I do. Because otherwise, like I mentioned earlier, I think about it, am I better off having partied a lot in my twenties and thirties, and then thought about sort of becoming more serious or did I do it the right way? And there's no right answer, but for me, it was the right answer because Mm -hmm. it afforded me the opportunity not to get to a point self-made, no handouts from anyone. I worked my ass off early on to be able to enjoy the reward of that now. So it was a Absolutely. really great experience, but listen, lived on the road, different cities, different countries, and you know, people think it's fun. It's not when you live on the road that way yeah. back then. So, but it was a great rewarding experience. And dealing with historic buildings, as you know, they're nuanced in a lot of ways kind of sets you up. So when someone talks about a building that's 10 years old, I'm like, child's play.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. One of those hotels is the Stanley Hotel. I live in Colorado, about an hour away from there. Any fun stories about that hotel or any fun experiences? I know room 217 has a few things. So
0: So many stories, but my favorite story is everyone thought the hotel was haunted, right? Yeah, absolutely. So this is back to the pay-per-view movie days. Literally, the doors were paper thin, literally paper thin. So we figured out all the clicks to do on how to order a movie, right? It's easy. You figure out the clicks. So like I'm traveling with you guys. I stand outside your room at three o'clock in the morning. Click, 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 click. And at three o'clock in the morning, there's a porn movie blaring (laughs) in a haunted hotel. And of course, now I have to watch you the next morning. Tell the friend desk, oh, I didn't do it. It went off by itself. Sure it did. So, we had so much fun screwing with people that way. And, you know, I don't know, we'd, we'd leave things under their pillow, like, I don't know, a chicken breast under someone's pillow oh and they my go God. to bed. Oh, so, it, it, was, it was very easy to screw with people. Now, as you know, that hotel, um, Stephen King went there to write Pet Cemetery, yeah. got stuck there and ended up writing The Shining. But contrary to popular uh, belief, it was not filmed there. They wanted to film it there, but there was a Safeway being built with a crane in the background. And if you know Estes Park, when it snows, the snow doesn't stick. So, in fact, it was filmed in my backyard here in the Timberline Lodge on Mount
2: Hood in Oregon.
1: Wow. 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 Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So After nine years of Grand Heritage, uh, you went over to Providence Hotels as president. Mm-hmm. What made you make that move and what attracted you to do that?
0: Uh, again, never asked. Uh, was asked you know, to join and uh, help take it from what was a family real estate business to a true hotel company. And, you know, this was early days of boutique independent lifestyle, whatever you want to call it. Kimpton was sort of king at the time. They really sort of invented that version of the business forgetting Schrager and all the others before them. But, you know, we did some really, really innovative things at the time. Privately held company, no one to answer to. We could do anything we want. And it allowed us to really do a lot of interesting things, trial and error, that others would not have been able to do. Like we use the example of, we put honey beehives on the roofs of our building before anyone did it. And of course, the lawyers and the insurance companies say, don't do it, don't do it. We're like, yeah, 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 whatever. We're going to do it anyway. And you have the ability to do it that way and made the USA Today life section cover page because the bees were dying off whatever. And now you say that and it seems like, yeah, everybody does that. Well, of course everybody does that. But when you're the first to do it, people are like, what? Are you crazy? Guests are going to get stung. You're going to get sued, blah, blah, blah. So being able to have a platform that allows you the flexibility to do interesting things. And by the way, Interesting doesn't equal shock and awe. Lots of people do shock and awe, but thoughtful, intentional, and interesting things. So it was a great opportunity to really define what's different about what we do and how it's different.
2: And part of that is a guest experience. How did you make the guest experience so unique at Your Properties?
0: at the end of the day we all live and die at the guest experience forget the design forget the branding forget the beehives forget all that stuff in my opinion i think people talk about training and they talk about credo cards and memorizing things i think the only way you can do good work is by creating a culture that celebrates those engagements and those transactions And culture creation, if I could write a book on it tomorrow, I would. It's not easy, right? Like people say, well, how do you do that? How you do that is the culmination of tens of thousands of little moments and little actions you take. But I truly believe at the end of the day, if you want to create culture of any kind, start by how you treat each other and how you treat your employees and how you treat your coworkers and the care you show for them. Because if I don't care about you, my teammate, I can pretend all day long that I care about the guest, it's never going to be genuine. So this idea of, you know, lead by example, but it's a lot more than that also, because I alone, a person can't lead by example, it's not enough. It's really creating a culture that allows people to A, appreciate what it is that you're doing and B, feel almost compelled to do it. I almost think of it like joining a family, right? Like if you're my kid, whether you're a good kid or a bad kid, if you share the last name, there's a certain expectations of you and there's a certain pressure on you to say, I am portraying my family's name in this transaction. I've got to behave myself, no matter how, where you are in in that spectrum. So I think this idea of creating a family-like environment where it is your pride to deliver, but also to some extent, there's a little bit of obligation. There's a little bit of guilt. A little bit of guilt goes a long way that you're representing and you have to do it. But if you just think you're a transaction, you're a number, you're an employee, you're there for a paycheck, and you don't care. We're working on coining this term. Now, in my current venture, we call give a shit ability. Like employees need a reason to care. You've got to give them a reason to care. And the best reason to make someone care is for you to care for them. So if I show you, I care for you, you're inevitably going to have a tiny bit of guilt that will make you care back, so to speak. Right. And I think that translates in the guest. So culture, 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 culture. I know there's no guide on how to do it, and there's no training book on how to do it. You've got to, every minute of every day, always do the right thing, and it happens organically.
1: Is there something you are most proud of when you were at Providence? I mean, our team, obviously,
0: I did nothing. I had an amazing team. I was, proud of, I was proud of our diversity on the corporate team. We were, I think, mostly females. Whatever God created, it was like Noah's Ark. I had them all. Our team in the field, early days, also female GMs. Everybody had a sense of pride. Like, you know, we talked, for example, I don't know, back in the day, if you worked at Whole Foods pre-Amazon, like you felt proud that you worked there. You bragged about working there. And I feel like we accomplished that in a lot of ways. We weren't perfect. Obviously we made a lot of mistakes and continue to make a lot of mistakes, but I think creating a place back to give a shit ability where people are proud to be associated with, I think goes a long way. Again, family, right? Like this is not rocket science.
1: When you joined Grand Heritage Group, you started Levant Hotel Holdings? Yeah,
0: that one That one is my personal sort of investment company. It doesn't have any employees or anything. It's just my own. Once I drank the first cup of Kool-Aid, I was in on hospitality, right? So I always knew I wanted to be in hospitality. So I created that vehicle to allow me to tinker with other things with hospitality on the side.
1: Yeah, it's funny how you know right away. I mean, it's uh, interesting. I tell the story, you know, I just, just even being a busboy, like I kind of, I just knew right away that I'm like, okay, I'm going to be in hospitality. I don't know how I knew it. I just, just knew it.
0: Funny you say that now. Like I go with Eileen, my wife to a party. She hates going to parties with me. Cause you'll invite me to your party. Right. And Steve's at your party. And I'll walk up to Steve who I don't know. I'll be like, Hey Steve, how's it going? I'm a Can I get you a drink? And my wife will be like, it's at your party. Like, why are you working the party? <laughs> but once you have it in you, right? Like I sort of, the job description I have for myself is I call myself the host of the soiree. Like wherever I go. And by the way, some hosts hate it. They're like, I'm taking their spotlight. Like, why are you messing with my guests? I got this. I'm like, no, you don't got this because Steve has an empty glass in his hand. You are not doing it right. His glass should not be empty. So I think to your point, David, once you have it, well, let me rephrase this. We all have it. We all have it, unequivocally. Once you realize you have it, it's hard to let go.
1: It's funny you say that because I was, uh, people looked at me like I was crazy. I was just at a meeting in New York and- Lunch was finished, but I wasn't running the meeting. I was, you know, somebody else was running in. I was kind of like the side. And I started cleaning up people's plates. And people were like looking at me like crazy, but, but I needed them to focus on the meeting and not sure. worry about cleaning up their plates. But it was pretty, it was, it was a fun, it's funny when you see those faces.
0: In, in that vein, literally, I will fight you to the, to the end <laughs> for holding a door or being the last to walk in a room. So I go to New York and it's muscle memory. I hold the elevator door and let people on. And, you know, in New York, people look at you like, what? Who are you? Why are you doing this, right? So it's funny, but it truly becomes muscle memory. Like I yeah. joke about the brand guys that have grown up with brands. They have the karate pillow chop in the <laughs> lobby. That's all they do all day is the karate karate chops, the decorative pillows. Yeah. And it's muscle memory, right? So I think this sort of holding the door and being be cleaning the table for us hotel people, it truly becomes muscle memory.
2: In July of 2020, you started the Assembly and Practice Hospitality I got to ask, what what made you leave Providence and start two companies right in the middle of the pandemic?
0: That is a very long story for another day. <laughs> but the why start, I mean, there's conventional wisdom about the best time to start is, in fact, during the worst times because you become more resilient, you pay your dues quickly and immediately, you suffer a lot. And we seem, whether you're religious or not, it seems like we as a species like to suffer Suffering equals success and or happiness. Like you can't just be born happy, you have to suffer to be happy. So I think it was a really great time as bad as it was, it was a really great time. And I think as we think about it, and as we think about what our proposition was, it was a moment of reset in our industry that made people rethink everything. And I thought it was an ideal time to allow me to practice what I've preached for a long time freely because remember there's always a board or an investor or whatever. And in this case, there's none. So if we don't do a good job, it is on us. We can't blame. there's no scapegoats, right? So it was great to have a blank canvas to really try to change the narrative a little bit. Look, our industry, in my opinion, has had two disruptions ever in its history. In my opinion, the internet, which disrupted everything, obviously. And then Airbnb outside of that, it's been largely ornaments on the tree. The tree is still the same. And I think our industry could stand some additional disruption. And I don't know what it is yet. If I did, I probably would be on my yacht in the south of France right now, probably still talking to you guys because I love this anyway. But ultimately, I felt like I needed the freedom with no shackles, with no handcuffs to be able to practice what I preach and do good work. And look, at the end, I don't want any portraits or books or anything like that. I just want someone, somebody to say, "Yeah, you know, that guy did good work for our industry. And that's really all I ask for.
1: So with the assembly uh, came the practice hospitality. How's practice hospitality different?
0: Yeah. So the two distinctions between the two companies, this assembly is the holding company, and it's ultimately going to do lots of other things in the hospitality space, owning real estate. In fact, I was tinkering and still am with a Web3 marketing agency. So it's designed to be a catch-all for whatever muse I have at the moment. Practice Hospitality is a hotel management company that owns nothing but is a service provider owned by this assembly. But I wanted to be able to have sort of an umbrella that allowed me to not dilute and confuse. So Practice Hospitality is a hotel management company. This assembly is the parent company that does other things.
1: Is there something specific in your mind that makes Practice Hospitality different?
0: Hotel management companies, dime a dozen, Commodity, lots of great ones, know them all, know a lot of their founders and CEOs, great people, smart people. Here's the analogy I use with practice. You and your spouse are trying to have a baby and you can't, and you work hard and you finally have a baby, and it is the apple of your eye. You are invested in everything that happens to that child that you brought into this world. And now you need to go on a trip. Do you give your baby to someone to manage? Like, think about how passive and terrible that term management is. And for anyone who's done hotel development, I mean, God, I'd argue in some cases that building gets more attention than your new baby. You agonize over every detail. You agonize over, you know, what shape the doorknob is. I mean, agonize. Blood, sweat, and tears, especially if you're doing it with your own money, right? You've borrowed money from your aunt and your third cousin and you put up your house as collateral. And now you've got to give it to someone to manage. So our premise was: look, we want to be small, we want to be nimble. We want you. The minute you ask us to do it for you, to not own the building anymore, you no longer own it. We own it because you want us to think like we own it. And that's our background is we come from owner operator. So we said lots of great management companies out there. But if you want more than management, in fact, we tinkered for a little bit with, do we call ourselves a hotel care company, a hotel nurture company? It got too cute at the end, but that's sort of the distinction I'd say is you give me your asset, she's mine. She's my baby. I'm going to take care of her like she's mine. And sometimes you may not like it, but trust me, in the end, it is for your benefit for me to think I own it, whether I own any of it or not, because I will never make a wrong decision when I think I own it. But if it's just a, hey, manage it, and I have 100 that I manage, it's just another versus the only one. And funny enough, some of my colleagues make fun of me. Like when I go to pitch a deal, I say, I use the baby example a lot. You know how like with your kid, if you have kids, you say, to the world, you may be one person, but to one person, you may be the world. I sort of kind of think of it in those terms. So think of it as handcrafted, owner-centric, small by design, never gonna be 500 hotels, that's not the intent. And you get our background and experience in having been owners and thinking like owners, but also being creative and boundary pushing and really thinking about thoughtful, intentional things to make the guest journey better and make your offering more valuable than the next guy.
1: Yeah, it's so true. I mean, I have, a, I have a friend who's CFO at a REIT, and one of the management companies, they use, manages and owns properties. And he said they love them because they the properties they manage, they manage them like they own them. And that makes that makes the actual owners very happy.
0: And actually, it's funny, this, this mentality, this ownership mentality. When I talk to a line-level employee, front desk person, I say, look, if you owned this hotel, literally you owned it, how would you handle this situation? of the time, it's always a perfect answer. Because when you think of like someone, someone is annoyed, right? They want their money back for whatever reason, whatever thing it is. And you're holding your ground. You're like, no, they shouldn't. I say, okay, well now they're going to go tell a friend, complain, blah, blah, blah. Is it really worth it in the end if you own this building? So if you put that owner's hat on, it changes your perspective. Similarly, there's a leak in the wall. Sure. I can paint the wall and make the leak disappear. But that's not the right thing to do. Open up the wall, find out why it's leaking, fix the leak, then paint it. So it's just, again, a different mindset. Because to me, a manager is transactional. Go, go, go. I'm here today, I'm gone tomorrow. An owner is forever. And you're thinking about things long-term.
2: Are there any hotels or any hotel types that are a good fit for practice hospitality? I
0: mean, think about the terms we use these days. They're all empty and meaningless. Lifestyle and boutique and independent and all of that. So to sort of shed that sort of thing... Let's call them lifestyle collectively, meaning it's not a beige brand that looks exactly the same in Cairo that it does in Cleveland. Anything other than that is sort of in our wheelhouse lifestyle. Now, Moxie is a lifestyle, right? I use that brand. But like Spring Hill Suites is not. I don't think of it as, right? But these days, by the way, AC, I mean, there's some great hotels out there and everyone has caught on to this idea that I don't know anyone, I don't know about you guys, who says, I am going to Cleveland and I want to stay in a really boring beige hotel. (laughs) Like no one ever says that. Now, what's cool, the cool bar is different from person to person. And what might be cool to you might be not cool enough for me or too cool for me. But fundamentally, this idea of lifestyle, I use that term loosely because it covers so much ground. So as long as it's lifestyle, you know, Can I manage a golf resort? Sure, I've done it before, but is that my skill set today? No. So I'd say we're urban, business-centric, 100 to 300, lifestyles generally, full service generally. Now, I have some anomalies, like I have a 12-room thing on the Oregon coast that we co-own and operate that's a different, unique offering. But outside of that, I would say urban, maybe not urban, but the right kind of fit, but lifestyle generally is that. And by the way, as you know from my neurotic hotel stays now, I sort of, after all these years, say there's only one way to judge a hotel, to rate a hotel. Forget stars, forget diamonds, forget, 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 forget. For a while there, I was using shower heads as my rating. (laughs) (laughs) On a scale of one to five shower heads, what do you get? But truly now, and maybe it's older and wiser, this is sort of like that monk moment in me. I sort of think about it and say, look, at the end of the day, a hotel, and by the way, a person, a car, a meal, all interactions in life, everything you do in life, literally everything is either memorable or forgettable. So if you applied that to a hotel, I don't care how much I paid, I don't care how many stars it had, I don't care what amenities it had, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. Is it memorable or is it forgettable? So I'd say the only hotels I wanna be involved with are memorable hotels, whatever that may be, right? Whatever it may be. Now. Memorable could be terrible memorable, because memorable generally is either an unmitigated disaster or really good. So hopefully we're on this side of the equation, but memorable, and if you really distill that down and think about it, if I don't give you a reason, David, to go home and tell your spouse, your partner, your friend, your neighbor, hey, I just stayed at and you won't believe, then all I've given you is a commodity. And if we become a commodity, you needed a bed and a shower. I gave you a bed and a shower. Check. If I've given you a commodity, I think of gas as commodity. I need gas for my car. I look for convenience, location, and price. I don't care if it's Shell or Exxon or whatever it may be, right? Fundamentally, because it's a commodity. And if we become a commodity and people are buying us purely based on location and price, we're dead, forget it, right? So ultimately. If I don't give you something beyond a stolen towel to bring home and talk about, at least even in your head, talk about it, you see, you know, and generally memorable, in my opinion, comes from thoughtful and intentional things, right? Often I give a lot of credit for hotels that have really thought through the guest journey and how I interact with the room beyond chalk and awe, but fundamentally memorable is people. I only remember interactions with people. I have 225 hotels, like, ask me what art is on the wall at Baccarat, I don't know. Ask me what flooring material is at the Ludlow, I don't know. But I remember when Steve at the Ludlow came out and found me the one thing I was looking for last minute, or I showed up at two o'clock in the morning, starving, dying, delayed flights, and he literally knocked on my door and delivered me a whatever. Like, that's a memorable thing. It's not the things, it's always the people.
2: So now we can kind of move into the industry thought, the last section here, First question, why is emotional intelligence so important in the hotel industry?
0: Oh, man. I mean, I tell people generally I have two things I look for in any candidate. Common sense, which is extremely uncommon, extremely uncommon. Back to my original point, not rocket science, guys. It is not rocket science. So common sense and emotional intelligence. And in fact, I have been working with the dean of the School of Hospitality at BU, We're talking about this idea is, can we create an emotional intelligence aptitude test that would allow me to, Steve, give you this test before you start working or as I'm screening you to show me that you have the ability to be emotionally intelligent? You may not have it. And by the way, I think, and I'm sure hate mail bring it, I think emotional intelligence is sort of, you either have it or you don't kind of thing, but hopefully we can refine it. So we're trying to figure out if there's a way to test people before we hire them. But why is it important? It is literally everything. Because back in the day, no offense to my friends at the Ritz-Carlton, we gave you a credo card that said, we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen, and you had to memorize it. Well, a robot can memorize a card. And if you believe what I'm about to tell you, I personally believe that the future of luxury at large, and I use the luxury term loosely, right? Like luxury... For someone here, it could be three-star or it could be seven-star, so forget where it is on the luxury scale, is ultra-customization. And ultra-customization requires emotional intelligence because David shows up at the desk, he's in a hurry, he's walking up to you with his credit card and his license, and you could clearly see he's a pro, right? He knows how to do this. You should be emotionally intelligent enough to read him and say, this guy doesn't want to be talked to. He wants me to hand him his key and send him on his way. And I say, like, don't even tell me where the elevator is. I can hear it. Thank you. Steve shows up and he's fumbling through his wallet and he's complaining about his flight and he's (laughs) complaining about about the stinky Uber driver or whatever. Like, this guy wants to be talked to. He wants to be engaged with. He wants to be recognized. So how do we train people that don't read the stupid credo cards for everyone who shows up because not everyone wants it? Some might, some don't. And I'm actually perplexed at. The idea that I have to tell you how to say good morning or good evening or good afternoon, like I'm not going to tell you how to do it. Do it your own way based on the customer in front of you because the goal is that they feel warm and fuzzy and they feel welcome. How you get there shouldn't matter. And if you think about what we said earlier, the brands had to do it, right? Because if I went to the Four Seasons in Cairo, and by the way, I have been and I was in the lobby and I'm like, I could be in Washington, D.C. Like there's no difference. I expected it to be like the McDonald's thing. When you go to McDonald's in, I don't know, Croatia, you want it to be exactly like the McDonald's you go to in, you know, New Orleans. You want you don't want it to be different because that's why you're going to McDonald's. But when you go to an independent place that tries to be independent lifestyle whatever, you want it to feel different and be different. So, I think ultimately emotional intelligence is reading your customer and giving them what they want, not what your company tells you they want, because the hell your company what what does your company know about David who just showed up at your door? nothing, right? Oh, we know he likes green M&Ms on the pillows. Come on. That's so 1994. (laughs) What does David want that moment, right? Because David's day is different. Like he may show up one day feeling a certain way and then show up another day feeling a certain way. And this is a tall order, by the way. I'm not suggesting that we're going to be psychiatrists here, but just emotionally intelligent enough to read your customer and give them what they want.
1: Can you make sure the designers take that test? Because I walk into so many hotel rooms where I'm like, who designed this room? They have no, there's no common sense. I'm like, why is this the way it is? But functionality you're talking about, right? Correct. Because look, the problem with aesthetic is it's
0: very subjective. What you may hate, I may love. Kind of like art, right? Like it's in the eyes of the beholder. But I tell people, for someone who travels as much, moves around as much as I do, like I have a system, right? I deal with a room in a certain way. Don't try to make it hard for me. I'll give you an example of a hotel to remain nameless in New York city, small hotel, small rooms, lovely hotel, small rooms. I walk into the room, I'm looking for the remote control. Now I know hotels, right? Inside and out with my eyes closed. Cannot find the remote control for the life of me. And I'm feeling a little stupid now. I'm like, uh, is it missing or am, am I miss? Is it right in front of me? And I can't find it. So this hotel happens to have a desk that folds, right? One of those, you fold it down. into a desk because the room is small. So the desk is folded, and inside the desk that's folded, that I'm not going to use, there's a little copy with the remote in it. I'm like, why would you ever put the remote there? It has zero sense. I may never open that desk. So how am I going to know that the remote is there? So those are the sort of when designers get cute and they don't think about the practical implication of a decision they make.
1: Sorry to stick on this, but it's probably the same hotel that I have problems with because they actually took the time to cut out holes and the mirror to put hooks. There, there's hooks along the wall for your stuff and they actually cut holes in the full length mirror to put hooks. But the whole purpose of a mirror is so you can look into it. So what would you be hanging over a mirror? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense.
0: I mean, listen, I can write a book about this stuff. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, leave, we'll leave it alone for now. But yeah, there's a lot of like you scratch your head. You're like, really? Why? Who thought this was a good idea? But now that you got me going, dear world, showers need doors. I don't care how cool you think it is and what sexy things you imagine happening in that shower without doors. Put a damn door on the shower because the stuff flies everywhere. You are freezing your butt off no matter what you do. And it just has zero practical use. Put a damn door on the shower.
1: agree. I, I agree. So why is storytelling so important for hotels?
0: I just threw up in my mouth, by the way, I apologize, because I'm so <laughs> tired of storytelling. I am so tired. I mean, literally, the, the, the nail salons now say we're storytellers. And anyone, friends, I love you, and I know some of you personally, if your title on LinkedIn says storyteller, please change it for your own good, not for <laughs> mine. Look, storytelling is a really interesting concept, because think about it. We humans throughout our existence, until very recently, that's how we told our history. We had to sit around the fire and grandma had to tell you because that's how we delivered our history millennia after millennia after millennia. So again, it's innate to us. It's in our nature to tell stories and it's our nature to want to hear stories. And back to my point about the give a shit ability, like, why am I staying in your hotel? What about it? What's exciting about it? Why is it not a commodity? So you kind of have to tell me a story. The problem is we use that term so much now that it's become empty and also you don't need to tell me the story of where the toilet seat cover came from. Like not everything (laughs) needs a story, right? But for example, if you have a curtain in your room and the fabric for that curtain was inspired by some native tribe that used to be in that area, like that's an interesting story. But I think there's also this issue now that we want to tell you everything about everything, which eliminates the sense of discovery in a place. I subscribe to that. I'm going to do something really cool and I'm not going to say a thing about it. And if you catch it, 10% of the people catch it and ask about it and are blown away, it's far more valuable than me telling you, I'm cool, I'm cool, I'm cool, I'm cool. And by the way, have you ever met a cool person that says, hey, David, I'm dope? <laughs> like, you, 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 just, like, you don't go around with a name tag that says, I am cool. It, it just happens. It's who you are. It's your authentic self. And the minute you have a sign that says, I'm cool, by definition, you're not. Cool people do not say they're cool, period. So the storytelling business has gone to the extreme. We need to calm it. We need to take it down like 72 notches and kind of let it be. Of course, I say weave a narrative, weave a narrative throughout your building, throughout your offering. But telling stories has very, I'm standing on a soapbox and monologuing you. Weaving a narrative is I find it when I find it, I don't when I don't. And in the end, if I get the whole picture, I am blown away because it just works so beautifully together.
2: Do you think it's hard for independent hotels to to break away from the mold and kind of find their uniqueness?
0: What a great question! And the problem now is, Curbed a few years back came out with a "How to Build a Cool Hotel" guide. The minute there's a guide, it's no longer cool. Again, right back to that name tag. So the issue now is having local art, having local coffee, having funny things in the in the minibar, having a beehive on your roof, having having rotating art galleries. Yoga in the morning, meditation rooms, kombucha tastings, you name it, have almost become ubiquitous. Everyone does it. Hampton Inn has cool art now, right? So how do you change the narrative and break away from the herd and be unique? So the first thing is you've got to be yourself. Like you can't try to be someone you're not because you'll fail miserably. People will see right through it. So I describe another one of the most overused words of the century, authenticity and authentic. I describe authenticity as an unapologetic point of view. So you've got to have a point of view, non-political, non-religious, non, you know, non-divisive, but you have to have a point of view because if you don't, you're just, again, a commodity. So I think to stand away from the heart is you have to have a thing that you own that you're unapologetic about, whatever that is. And that thing may be an attitude, right? It's not a thing necessarily. But then I also think. We've gotten away from humanity in hospitality because it's become about, I want to out-design you and out-art you and out-brand you and out-storytell you and out-shock and awe you. And we forgot that ultimately, what I just told you earlier, what makes it memorable is you and you, not this thing and that thing. So I think refocusing back on the human interactions and in a world of immediate gratification, right? I want it now from whether it's dating or whatever it may be. I think the art of courtship is lost in our society. Having a moment with a guest, like a sincere sort of connection, I think that's what's going to set you apart and break away from the herd. Because the herd is throwing things at it, but ultimately what's going to make you memorable is if you focus on how you interact with the people that walk in your door every day and how you treat them and how you care for them when they're in your building.
1: One of the things that bothers me, and now that we've been talking for a little, I would love to get your opinion on, is what do you think of these city-centric hotels that are charging these but I think are kind of crazy amenity fees. You know, they, they charge you $40 a day and they say you can get, you get your phone included, fit, access to the fitness center, Wi-Fi. What, what do you think about this? David,
0: really interesting question. And it's kind of become a third rail in a way. Look, it's really, really, really hard to make any money in our business today, notwithstanding COVID. The margins are getting squeaked to death for the right reasons, by the way, because we must pay our people better. We must treat them better. Unfortunately, the consumer is not paying for it. And at the end of the day, we have responsibility to investors. So I'm gonna call it like it is. I'm gonna give you the real answer because people are gonna dance around the subject. You'll get the honest truth from me. We're not in the business for charity. We're in the business to make money. And again, we have responsibilities to investors. So for us to make money and reward our employees, the only way for the math to work is for the customer to pay more, meaningfully more. And the customer has been resistant about paying more, particularly in a soft market because they have options. So this amenity fee, we call it, really became a way to mitigate our issue of cost. Because what was happening is we had to give you free Wi-Fi because it became the norm, but Wi-Fi costs money. We had to give you coffee in the morning. We had to give you a wine hour in the evening. We had to give you, we had to give you, we had to give you. So that was a way for us to compensate ourselves for all these things we had to do to be competitive and fundamentally to make sure our teammates are being treated well, and getting a living wage. And although we all hate it, and I agree with you by the way, some places I go to, they're like 24 seven front desk. I'm like, you're a four star (laughs) hotel. You better have 24 seven front desk. So I would say so long as you are in fact putting real amenities to it, sadly, it is a lifeline for hotels. They need it desperately. Some are abusing it and they should not be, but I would much rather, and I'll say it on record, I would much rather charge you a little more in rate and not have to do this. The problem with charging more with the rate, as you know, becomes this psychological 9.99 thing. So I would say, look at what they're offering you, think about it, and be a bit more forgiving about it. Because it really is truly a necessity. We're not getting rich off it, we're supplementing our loss in the exponentially more expensive world we do business in to allow us to stay in business. Because if we don't stay in business, it's no good for you, it's no good for our employees, it's no good for anyone.
1: Yeah, no, uh, well said. I mean, I think that's, that is the biggest issue is how how they phrase it, how they, pa- how they present it.
0: And package it. And by the way, the way we make it work is we overpackage it. We give you too much. And a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to use, I'm not going to use this. But everyone will say, yeah, I have coffee. And yes, I use the Wi-Fi. And yes, I do this. As long as it's not outrageous. And I've seen it outrageous in some places.
1: So outside of the labor shortage, what's the biggest thing, challenge facing our industry that people aren't talking about enough?
0: I think people are talking about it and I wish I knew the answer for it. But generally my hotels, like I said, are business center centric, you know, city center, business centric. And not if, because it is, not when, because it is back, business travel, but how much of it. And no one can answer that right now. So if business travel is back at 50% of 2019, God help us all, we are in for a long, long period of hurt. And you're going to see a lot of hotels go into bankruptcy and back to the bank. If it's back at 70%, sure, we could probably live through it. But the problem with these urban city center hotels is, you know, their bread and butter is the Monday through Thursday road warrior. The tourists are nice. But if all of a sudden the offices aren't back and people aren't back and people aren't traveling as much, then there is a seismic shift in our industry that makes these markets extremely oversupplied for what they need. And what happens to all those assets? I mean, it's sort of the same conversation if you're in the parking business and you truly are visionary and you are thinking about you know, driverless cars. A car is going to drop you off in your office and go on and park in the suburbs somewhere. It doesn't need to be downtown. So that's probably a decade plus away. But this issue is here now. Count malls again. What do you do with malls? But this issue is here now. And the office we know for a fact won't be back at 100%. But what we don't know is what I said. who knows? That to me is a major, major, major issue. Now, the drive-to destinations and the resorts, as you saw, have had record years. But I tell people, if you want any economic indicator, look at your Facebook feed this last summer. They weren't in the Grand Canyon and they weren't in Palm Springs. They were in France and Italy and Switzerland. So I think a lot of those places will subside. They're gonna do better than they did historically, but they won't see the kind of euphoria they saw for the last two years. So if anyone was blind enough to think that that gravy train will not come to a stop and went and built, those people are going to probably get hurt also. But to me right now, for my business, my biggest concern is business travel velocity once the dust settles. And we're still in the dust settling mode.
2: Great answer. We've talked about how important the human element is in the guest experience, but what are some ways that hotels can utilize technology to create a better guest experience?
0: Great question. How do we utilize technology to help us do what we do better? During the pandemic, people jumped on the technology bandwagon because it was a human elimination tool and thus a cost elimination tool. And I think we went too far with it and too extreme with it. So I order a towel in New York city in a hotel and a little R2D2 brings me a towel to my room. Perfect. I don't need any human interactions when I'm dripping wet and trying to, you know, get an extra towel. And self-checking I've done, and I like it as an option. I don't like it when it's the only option. Because fundamentally, you lose the opportunity to interact with me and impress me with your hospitality if all I'm doing is on my phone, on the plane, straight to my room, straight back down, and straight out. Now, airlines have perfected that science. Like, you don't deal with anyone, right? You check in on your app, and they've cut out. Think about that. Hordes of people they stop behind counters checking you in and lines and all of that. All gone. But airlines have the magic moment of having you stuck in that aluminum tube for five hours where they can engage with you and interact with you. We don't have the opportunity in hotels. So I think the way to do it well is to have it as an option. And if you go back to this idea of personalization and emotional intelligence, when I show up and I want to talk to you, talk to me because that's how you're going to make my stay memorable. But if I don't want to talk to you, I have the option to do it electronically or you just hand me my key and send me on on my way. So I think there are ways to do it where it's a creative and it helps my margins as we're talking about earlier, cause we need that help. If it's an option, I'm all in for it. Don't force it on me unless I expect it to be part of your thing. Like some chains, by the way, there's a hotel in Tokyo that I've stayed at that has literally dinosaur robots at the desk. You go there for that. So there I probably know I'm not dealing with it. But outside of that optionality, emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence, and don't miss the opportunity to make your offering memorable. By saying hello to me with a friendly kiss.
2: Absolutely, I think giving guests the option of choosing and what their ex- what experience they want, I think that's so important for hotels to understand. And then the last question here before before we let you go here, do you have any uh, any Wally hacks for any of our listeners out here?
0: Oh, besides the shower head and I don't know if I should property anywhere. I'm trying to think of, and you know, there's the good you know, old fashioned. The remote is the dirtiest thing in a hotel room. And, you know, you grab a bag out of the ice bucket and you grab the remote with it, put it inside out. By the way, one of my pet peeves is having the extra toilet paper right next to the toilet in the splash zone. So I'm like, how many people have contributed to that roll of toilet paper that I don't want to touch anymore? But generally speaking, you know what my hack is? I'll tell you what my hack is. Best hack. Tip your housekeepers every day generously. minimum $5. Write a note that says thank you, no matter what language they speak. Because the service you get is incredibly next level and extra bottles of water, and, 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 and. And God, it's the right thing to do. So treat those people like humans because they are and go out of your way because they deal with the worst in humanity. Because humans lose their brains in hotels and they do crazy shit that they never do in their normal lives. And we expect these people, you know, to deal with that with a happy face. So please take care of those housekeepers and the heart of house folks because they're behind the scenes, they're the heroes. There's my
1: hat, Corey. I love that. That's a good one. Thank you so much. That brings us to the end. Is there a question that we should have asked you that we didn't?
0: I'm glad you didn't ask me what my favorite hotel is, because it's such an impossible question to
1: answer. Yeah, that was a rookie podcast mistake early on. We asked that question and we took it out.
0: (laughs) Exactly, because I'll end up telling you 20 of them. No, I think we covered it. I think, look, you guys do a great job with this, and I think it's great to have the opportunity to talk to folks who are interested in the industry, And I love sort of being the guy who has, like I said, no one to answer to. So I speak my mind and if you like it, great. If you don't, fine, whatever. So glad to be here and glad to share my uh, two cents with you.
1: Thank you. Anything you like to plug? People can find your hotels. Anything you want to talk about?
0: Tip your housekeepers generously. That's the only thing I want to
1: plug. Great. We appreciate it. So that brings us to an end of the Modern Hotel. You're presented by Stay Flexi. Uh, Until next time, thank you so much made it to the end of The Modern Hotelier. Thanks for listening. Make sure to
2: subscribe and follow wherever you listen to your podcast. The Modern Hotelier is produced by Make More Media and presented by Stay Flexi. Stay Flexi is your modern operating system for independent hotels. If you're interested in learning more about Stay Flexi, you can go to stayflexi.com. Or if you'd rather talk to me instead, feel free to shoot me a message on LinkedIn or email me at stayflexi.com. Thanks and have a great day.